Hey everyone, The Ringer has new merchandise for sale right now. Go to theringer.com slash shop to pre-order your official Ringer merchandise today. David, Stormy Daniels on 60 Minutes drew 22 million viewers Sunday night. What <laughs> other blockbuster interview could get that kind of audience? Um, just sorry to be meta right off the top. I think it's the perfect combination of subject and subject matter, right? Yes. So Donald Trump could go on 60 Minutes and wouldn't probably get 22 million right immediately. But if it was Donald Trump on the Russian allegation, Russia allegation, Donald Trump fesses up, Donald Trump on Stormy Daniels, that might, that we might get us there, right? I thought you could say Donald Trump spanking, but sure. (laughs) I mean, you look at the most the most famous. Who are the most famous people in America? I mean, uh, Mark Zuckerberg on CNN did not. I don't know. I could. I tried to Google and find out. Definitely didn't get 22 million people watching no. that. We're going to talk about him later on. Um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, Beyonce announcing something greatly significant, maybe. Uh, I mean, I if I if if my internet research is correct, LeBron James' The Decision several years ago only got 13 million viewers. And again, it's attached to news, right? Yeah, because you got to get out of celebrity. That interview. was a really newsy one, though. I mean, that was when you have to be watching then. Totally. So yeah. I think I think how about a national bloodletting with Harvey Weinstein? Oh um, yeah. Oh, that's great. Wouldn't you watch? Absolutely. I mean, it's horrible. It's a car wreck. But wouldn't you watch if you sure. were going to answer the questions? Are we are we past OJ? Mm. If I did it too, they just had an OJ interview. Oh, that but that was the interview. interview. Yeah, but it was new to us. A sequel, right? And and maybe not twenty two million. But if Tiger said, "I'm going to talk about my divorce. I'm going to talk about the women. <laughs> I'm going to talk about my dad. Yeah. This new book. This new book's out. Right? If he goes out there and does sure. this, could we get to eleven million? Uh, you could get to 1,100. That's the total the total <laughs> listening audience of the press box. That's for sure. We are your media analysis twosome on the golf course of life. This is the Press Box on the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the media podcast where you're not allowed to accuse someone of being an uninformed NFL fan when they are, in fact, the starting safety of the Tennessee Titans. <laughs> That actually happened to Deion Sanders this week. We are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer. If you want some recent media content, please check out Molly McHugh on Sheryl Sandberg and Victor Lukerson's Facebook Cambridge Analytica syllabus. Plus, of course, the continuing adventures of Mark Titus and Tate Frazier on March Madness in all of its forms. But David, I've got three topics for you today. First, the Facebook story has gone from a closely observed Aaron Sorkin character piece to a full-on Blumhouse horror show. We discuss what happened Second, Sports Illustrated is for sale. What kind of media entity are prospective buyers going to get? And finally, news from the Trump media. Ralph Peters quits Fox News and readers everywhere quit Breitbart News. We develop a unified theory of these developments. Plus, as always, our overworked Twitter joke of the week. But let's start with topic number one. I call it good night and good zuck. David, the giant news in tech this week is that we heard the sound of Mark Zuckerberg's voice. Zuckerberg's website is omnipresent, but the man himself is elusive enough that I had probably forgotten that Jesse Eisenberg doesn't run Facebook at this point. (laughs) But here, let's start with Zuck apologizing on CNN this week after it was revealed that Cambridge Analytica may have improperly harvested, what a a wonderful verb that is, the data of 50 million users. So I think here's where I'd want to start with this. A lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people shrug off breaches of privacy these days, right? How many times we heard the credit cards of a billion people are Mm -hmm. compromised in this thing? What bothered us this, I would say, is not so much the breach of privacy, but the breach of privacy that may have helped Trump win. Absolutely true. Right? This is a Trump scandal as much as it is a privacy scandal. Don't you think so? Yeah. I mean, that was my big all caps note at the top of my, my notes here was that, you know, we're okay with 
data theft <laughs> or, or <laughs> privacy violations. Some of us actually un- like data theft until <laughs> until uh, it you know it helps something that we're that we're opposed to, right? I mean, part of it is that and, and particularly Trump. Sure. I mean, come on, right? Sure. Opposed to the Yankees winning another World Series title, eh, whatever. But Trump, like that, that's the ultimate. Yeah, I mean, certainly there would be a public outcry if it turned out that like face, Facebook user data was going towards. I'm trying to think of something in the same sort of political hemisphere. If, if Facebook user data was somehow going towards like anti-abortion research sure. or something like that, you know, I mean, and then and then you know, a lot of the same people would be outraged. Certainly, the outrage would not have reached this same level. I mean, I think you're right. It's Trump is it has much more to do with Donald Trump than it does to do with technology. I think there's a certain baked inness to, uh, you know, how much of our lives we're giving away to Facebook and how, like you said, generally just unoutraged we are about the whole thing. You know, it's funny. This is a total sidebar, but uh, I remember finding out about a company that was doing in-store marketing and they were, you know, like when you're in the drugstore and sometimes there's a little plastic display on the aisle, I mean, on the, yeah, on the, the, the shelf itself that'll have like coupons in it or something like that. Yeah. And there's some companies that actually have, there's like computers in these displays that are like taking your biometric data. Like they know <laughs> that a white man in your general age demographic is spending however many seconds you spend staring at this thing. In a Brooklyn Nets hat. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, w- and when you tell people about this, they're so much more outraged than they are about Facebook sit- giving their data, giving their personal data away to 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 advertisers despite the fact that Facebook knows you much more intimately yes. they have they have potentially criminal stuff on everybody <laughs> everybody who's walking the earth and this is and and the only difference is you know this is real life versus you know the internet right yeah. in some sense you should be more outraged about this new technology of the internet you know that this is this is the unknown frontier right the thing in Dwayne Reed is much more real but the thing it's just the surprise it's like sci-fi yeah but but it's also just that i didn't know that was happening and i've convinced myself that i knew this facebook gather data gathering stuff was happening what we didn't know was that it was helping get trump elected yeah and the thing is, we don't quite know how much it helped get Trump elected, right? There's right. this fabulous Mother Jones piece by Andy Kroll. And you read this, and it's amazingly told, but you read this thing, and Cambridge Analytica was just kind of like faking like they had all the answers. Yeah. You know, to Ted Cruz's campaign got so fed up with them, mm-hmm. and Trump's campaign didn't want any, Manafort didn't want anything to do with them. But they were the kind of, you know, their sponsors were the Mercers, these huge conservative GOP donors. Sure. So nobody felt they could cut ties with them. Yeah. But then when Trump won, of course, they, like everybody else, <laughs> Manafort, Lewandowski, everybody went around saying, ah, see, I did it. You mm-hmm. know, we got it done. But it's unclear really how much they even did, which right. is what the, what the mystery is. And I don't know if we'll ever clear that up. A couple directions I want to go with Facebook here. Can we take a moment to appreciate the Mark Zuckerberg apology tour yeah. that took place? Um, <laughs> Lori Siegel, who's the CNN reporter, had an amazing interview with him. Mm-hmm. The one thing is his, his affect, the way he talks is not apologetic at all, it no. turns out. It looks like he's startled by all these questions that are seemingly the most basic questions. I don't know if you could watch that. Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. She also had just great success just asking him basic things like, do you believe Facebook affected the results of the 2016 election? Will you testify before Congress? And everyone who's kind of like, wah, yeah. wah, wah. Yeah. Um, that, was, that, was, that was kind of horrifying. Weird, but it did seem, though, that he was very – that he had prepared for all that, for, all the, for this line of questioning, right? Yeah. And, and as awkward as, as he might have been in performance, 
he, he was prepared. And, and weirdly, the question that gave him the most, most pause, at least from when I, from in, from my point of view, was when she asked him how like being a father had affected his his decision making <laughs> right. or his leadership style. It's it, like it's like he had to like roll back. He had to like find the right button to push to respond to like how fatherhood had affected him. Totally. Um, yeah, it was it was a very, very interesting interview. It was also that kind of amazing thing where she asked, given the stakes here, why shouldn't Facebook be regulated? Right. Yeah. And he's like, well, I don't know why, you know, why we shouldn't be regulated. We actually mm-hmm. have the sound of that. Here we go. Let's listen to it. Given the stakes here, why shouldn't Facebook be regulated? Um, I, I actually am not sure we shouldn't be regulated. And then it's funny because then he says, well, you know, what we need is the right regulation. She comes back with, well, what's the right regulation yeah. for you? I mean, you're like, whoa, he's saying, you know, mm-hmm. government, please come, please come get involved with me. Sure. Which is the last thing any of these guys want, right? Of course. This is the point. If you watched uh, Sheryl Sandberg on CNBC, she was... She was all talking points. Mm-hmm. We've made a mistake. Mm-hmm. This is a grave breach of trust. Right. We're doing our best to, re- you know. Which, I mean, it has to be said, neither of them believe any of this stuff, right? They're, they're out there for PR purposes. They didn't want to say anything at Cheryl all. Cheryl Sandberg was clearly aware that this had been happening and that this breach of, quote unquote, breach of trust was an ongoing part of the Facebook business model, which is not, I'm not trying to knock her for, for knock Facebook for doing this. I mean, this is something that that customers, by and large, allowed them to do somewhat knowingly for a long period of time. For sure. Um, and I think that probably, you know, that there's, that uh, you know, I'm in the, listen, I'm in the Mark Zuckerberg camp and that I do think some regulation uh, would be helpful. And I have no idea what that regulation is. So, <laughs> um, Zuckerberg got a lot of flack when she said, do you want to, you know, he was asked about speaking before Congress and, you know, a, a bunch of quickly edited YouTube videos showed him answering, basically saying, that's why I'm here giving this interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't saying he was giving the interview in lieu of a congressional deposition or whatever. What he was saying was he recognizes his place as a sort of figurehead of the company. And that's and his place is to come, you know, give interviews on CNN to national media. And there might be people who, who he employs who are more uh, suited to be to, to testifying before Congress, right? I was I always read it as he recognizes this as a state of emergency. Yeah, where he has to go on television. Sure, and, and obviously does. he will. And and it's also true that he would avoid going before Congress just for the same PR reasons that he's out there giving this thing. Now that said, uh, you know what he and Sheryl Sandberg are doing is PR. You know, I mean that's true, and that's why they're out there. And so damage like, control. That yeah. Um, and so nothing they say should be taken particularly seriously. If you're comforted by the, their responses, then, you know, I, that's good for you. That's what was so interesting because people almost treat it like a politician where what we wanted was reassurance, uh-huh. you know, in the right tone as mm-hmm. much as anything. Right. We're working on the problem. We're doing this. Mm-hmm. As a lot of people pointed out that they, they apologize all the time yeah. and have apologized a lot lately. And it's always we hear you. We're working on this. We have a responsibility to you mm-hmm. going forward. Do we think hashtag delete Facebook is a big enough thing no. to affect them? I mean, I have seen, I've talked to some of the the tech writers that we have on staff here, and there is a sort of feeling of, I don't know if it's uh, bemusement or just sort of shock that um, that this is actually affecting Facebook to the extent that it has. When yeah. this is, for most of the people who are covering this issue, none of this is new information. None of it is surprising. Cambridge Analytica is is a just sort of perfect villain or not villain's not even the right word. I'm just a perfect um just a perfect metaphor for all for this problem that has been ongoing. Um and I think that there's that yeah, I mean it's it's surprising that this is getting that this is kind of as sticky a, a, a new subject as it is. But as we've talked about a million times before, what the news media 
and you know is constantly looking for is that hook, right? I mean, what's get, this is these are stories that, that people have been trying to write or have been actively writing for the past ten years. Now they have a way to to write about it that the average consu- news consumer can can glom onto. Right, and if it's so, I mean, we're all trying to answer the mystery of what happened in the twenty sixteen election. Right, who interfered? Exactly. What did they do? How much did it matter? And all of a sudden, Facebook becomes a chapter in that. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it becomes a really you know an even more vivid chapter. Yeah. Not just oh, they monkeyed around with ad- with ads on Facebook and fake news and all the other kinds of things that mm-hmm. we were worried about several months ago, but they took your data. And that helped Trump. Well, win. I, it feeds directly into the ongoing from, mystery of the day. From the moment that the Cambridge Analytica story broke, there was a very clear, I mean, and many people commented on it, attempt by Facebook to say this is not a data breach. We're defining the terms. Yeah. The data breach is the worst thing that could possibly happen to a tech company. There were a lot of rules that were broken. There were guys, you know, we have policies in place. This was not a data breach. And that's fine. I mean, and I think in some sense, the the discussion over that has helped Facebook by sort of deflecting the central premise. Cambridge Analytica itself is the deflection, uh, you know, a happy accident of a deflection away from the central premise, which is that what Cambridge Analytica did or what, you know, whoever the, the, the real villains in the story are was to hold on to data that they were or give pass that along to a subcontractor or affiliate that wasn't supposed to have it. And then they kept it beyond the, you know, the, the scope of the agreement, whatever. But there's no question that Facebook had no had deliberately given these people, given someone this data, that they were sharing this data widely with their advertisers and their, yeah, you know, and, and their affiliates. So, uh, you know, in some sense, Facebook is sort of dodging some of the most damning, you know, uh, aspects of the story just by this, just because of Trump's, ex- you know, because Trump is, is, is in the story. Yeah, and a lack of, I think, just sophistication about this with most people, mm-hmm. right? They don't, they basically understand Facebook as that is where my baby pictures go. Uh, a couple other notes before we leave this by topic. By the way, by the way, the baby picture thing is real, and I think Facebook, you know, I mean, their business model since its inception has been lit, or since it went wide to grandparents around the world, is, <laughs> that to, was really is to move moment, beyond right? move beyond baby pictures, right? I mean, they're trying to get more and more significant, but I've heard some people say that the reason why news the news feed kind of took over Facebook is because people stopped using it as much for for you know communicating with your loved ones. Speaking of politics, remember when Mark Zuckerberg was running for president? Couple months ago, yeah, that's not happening anymore, is it? Yeah, I mean, you 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 opened the segment talking about how you'd you know forgotten what his voice sound like, or you know forgotten who. For so long, all we were seeing of Mark Zuckerberg were these sort of was at rodeos and yeah. parades and all this stuff, and that was yeah. amazing. Just gauzy photos of him, you know, experiencing America and and <laughs> writing about his journeys. Also, the other thing here is that is this Kevin Ruse's column in the New York Times. He's one of the guys who interviewed him sure. in the damage control mode, right? And he asked him, you know, why is it free and why don't you, have you ever thought of paying for it? And, you know, Zuck says, well, it's, you know, about we're about getting scale and connecting the whole world together to keep it free. Mm-hmm. And then Roos writes in his column and says, it's not clear this is great for society, quote unquote, and talks about, you know, it's not only just the American election. Is it when you have no barrier to entry, right? Right. Then you also have, you know, Facebook, you know, aiding in the ethnic cleansing and Myanmar, right? So people, when people are paying you, you're also the other part of this is when people are paying you, you're less likely to scavenge all their information for advertisers because you mm-hmm. got another income stream, right? So then the the question of you know is Facebook always free? Is Facebook free forever? Do we go to five dollar five bucks a month Facebook? I think yeah. Bill had this conversation about Twitter the other day, but that's obviously hanging in the air here too. Sure, it's unlikely they'll ever do it. But. I mean, you know, when you when you're talking about regulations, I, I think that there's there's a very a, a very uh, tenuous argument about this, you know, about things like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, even, you know, being 
being public utilities. And you see that argument being made a lot from the right now. Steve Bannon famously supposedly <laughs> made that argument. Um, but I think that the much more concrete way to go about this is we've talked about this in the show before. Look at the percentage of ad dollars that are spent every year and how much of those are going through places like Google and Facebook. And then, and then you know, go from there. Because if they're that much of the American economy, then I think that that's a really good place to start for this sort of, you know, organization. Now, David, it's time for our overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Yes. Last Tuesday, according to a Washington Post scoop, Donald Trump ignored the notes his national security advisors gave him when he congratulated Russia's Vladimir Putin on winning re-election. The specific passage Trump ignored read, in all caps, do not congratulate. After which everyone on Twitter joked that Trump's next briefing should include the phrase, do not resign. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to Scott Lacey for that one. A group award for anyone, excuse me, making fun of CBS's Jim Nance for having to read promos for the 60 Minutes interview with Stormy Daniels. <laughs> and also jokes about Steve Croft's profile of Giannis being the best thing on 60 Minutes Sunday night. This was Adam Best tweet. 60 Minutes showing the giant hands of Giannis while Donald Trump is watching his <laughs> Hall of Fame trolling. Thanks to Jimmy Trainer's column on SA.com for that. But to this week's runaway winner, David, runaway and wide-ranging winner, to anyone who filled in this Mad Libs Twitter joke, quote, Marvel colon Infinity War is the most ambitious crossover <laughs> event in history. Oh, no. Me colon, and then put in the funny. Yeah. So I think Alan Iverson crossing over Michael Jordan <laughs> <laughs> was a big one. Also, uh, pictures of the Clintons at Donald <laughs> Trump's wedding. Yeah. A picture, I believe Max Street posted this of George W. Bush and Jared from Subway. <laughs> kind of amazing. But as a as a pop culture child of the nineties and eighties as I am, uh-huh. did you know about all these actual examples? <laughs> Microsoft Windows 95 instructional VHS hosted by Jennifer Aniston and Matthew Perry. Wow. What? Well, I had no idea. I had no idea. The Alf Matlock crossover. <laughs> I remember that. How did that? I, episode eight, season two of Matlock. How did I miss that? Uh, Murder, <laughs> She Wrote in Magnum P.I. I looked up the episode. This is the IMDb. Jessica Fletcher comes to the, the assistance of Magnum when he's framed for two murders that occurred during her vacation in Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite, and this may have been the actual first crossover that you and I ever experienced uh-huh. the Hanna-Barbera Laugh Olympics. Oh gosh, yes. Can we can we play the intro for the Hanna-Barbera Laugh Olympics? Heavens to hilarity. This is it, sports fans. Participants even. Television's greatest array of stars. Laugh Olympics presents the round the world triple team competition between the Yogi Yahoois, the Scooby Doobies, and the really rotten the players are on the field, in the stadium even. So let's get on with it. Laugh Olympics. Heavens to hilarity. <laughs> Amazing, right? Oh my gosh, cartoons out of kayfabe. That's really crazy, man. The Knicks beat writer for The Athletic, Mike Vorkanov, also made a joke about some crossover moves he saw at the actual basketball game he was attending the other night. Just some right? straight observations about crossover moves. And then he tweeted... Oh, I guess I could have done those with Infinity Wars, the most ambitious crossover tweets. Now I'll never make the overworked Twitter joke of the week real. So don't worry, Mike. We're going to be watching your Twitter career very closely from here for you. Oh, we got you, man. All right. Before we talk about Sports Illustrator for sale, David, let's take a quick break. 
Hey guys, I'm Mark Titus. And I'm Tate Frazier. And we are the hosts of One Shining Podcast. It is March. Check your calendars. It's true. March Madness is coming up. We're here to talk about all things college basketball. If you like FBI investigations, mm-hmm. if you like teams that are on the bubble and think they belong in even though they have like 16 losses come check out one shiny podcast if you like buzzer beaters buzz williams being buzz watching basketball those are all three things you can do and you can listen to us we're going to talk about everything that happens in the ncaa tournament it's going to be great we're going to be here all month please subscribe to one shiny podcast check all of our, our stuff out tate has done some very disgusting things for money in the past yes. and he it, he is desperate more to for come more subscribers mm-hmm. so he doesn't have to return to his old life so please 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 Subscribe to our pod. Check us out. We're having a lot of fun this March. Uh, you can get us wherever you find your podcast, Apple, Stitcher, SoundCloud. I, I'm a Google Play guy. Google Play doesn't get enough love when people do this. List. And Spotify. People and are Spotify, on Spotify now, so. so go check it out. We have exciting news for all you Ringer heads out there. The Ringer has new merchandise with a shiny new storefront that you can check out right now. We have hats, hoodies, and even an exclusive Shea Serrano disrespectful dunk t-shirt. Your friends will be low-key jealous when they see you strutting down the street with an official Ringer zip-up hoodie. Previously available only to Ringer staffers, we are letting you, our loyal listeners, get first dibs on the goods. Go to theringer.com slash shop to pre-order your merch now. These are limited run items and will not last long. Once they're gone, they're gone. Again, check out theringer.com slash shop to pre-order your official Ringer merchandise today. You can also find the link to the Ringer web store in the podcast description. Our second topic, David, in honor of one of its most famous franchises, where is Sports Illustrated now? Last week, as expected, we learned that Meredith, the company that bought Time Inc., plans to sell venerable titles. And by the way, watch out when they start calling your place of business venerable. Like Time, Fortune, and Sports Illustrated, which, as their website boasts, has been making long form since 1954. I thought we could do this maybe as a buyer's guide for anyone interested in purchasing Sports Illustrated. What's working? What's not working? (laughs) Why don't we start with what's working? What do you like about Sports Illustrated in its current form? Uh, Is it? Am I? uh, Am I betraying too much? But to say that I don't know. I mean the 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 print edition. Yeah, I think we. I don't. I don't think we're reading the print edition, right? No. I say when I I was going to say when I come across it, and you know the the joke is always you know your ophthalmologist waiting room or whatever. I I I like I like it when you find. Uh, a weekly magazine, like folded in half, in the back of a seat on a on a uh, a train or an airplane. That's a, that's like the great place to come in to come in and to interact with it sports. Feels very Australia. old school, yeah. especially the folded in half part. Yeah, like fit in my back pocket. I've, yeah, I've made my way through it. Now I'll leave this behind. Um, you know, I, I was I was thinking a lot about about Peter King's MMQB. Yeah. Um. I I, I like a lot of the stuff on there. I don't. I honestly don't have much of a grasp for how for how far that is permeated as a brand. It certainly seemed like a much bigger deal at its inception when when uh, verticals and personality driven websites, of which we can speak some <laughs> about some, uh, were were more in vogue or more of a going concern. Um. But you know, I mean, I I think that. What they do well still largely is the sort of institutional stuff. You know, they do they they can handle March Madness in a in a very in a sort of way with that echoes the past, but is still very you know it feels very current. Um, and you know, they still have a they still are a space for um, a sort of slightly I don't want to say old fashioned because that's like venerable. They're 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 a space for a certain kind of sports writing that doesn't exist widely outside of Sports Illustrated. I think that's right. And I think you and I probably say that as a compliment. 
mm-hmm. you know. Uh, For sure. Yeah, it's sort of like they can still command attention with a big long-form neutron bomb, right? Yeah. Lee Jenkins, Tom Verducci, S.L. Price, Chris Ballard, right? John mm-hmm. Wertheim stuff. Our pal Charlie Pierce doing a column, you yeah. know, can really can capture the thing. I think when I was making my list also kind of surprisingly, they've been, you know, are they the leader on sports Me Too pieces? You know, with the Jerry Richardson piece and the sure. Dallas Maverick stuff? Mm-hmm. You know, have they done, you know, like pray Larry Nasser is its own category. But other than that, have they done more significant ones than anything else? It seems like it, sure. I mean, you know, Jerry Richardson's gone, right? Yeah. Mavericks are, you know, in deep, deep trouble as they should be from that. I think, you know, when we look at downsides, you mentioned Peter King, right? I think his column and Richard Deitch were the two must read things every week. that mm-hmm. Just just about anybody yeah. read, right? Deitch is gone to The Athletic. Peter King, we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Right. So all of a sudden you say, where is the must, where is the must, the thing that I just have to come back to? Sure. That they both had for a really, really long time. I don't think that, I mean, I'm not trying to make an argument that SI mishandled MMQB, but you can certainly see a version of, of, you know, uh, an alternate timeline in which MMQB, if handled differently, would be worth more as its own property in 2018 than SI is going to sell for in a couple of months. You know, <laughs> I, rem- I remember that was always a thing. Yeah, it's and like, I, is, is it going to be MMQB presents SI? You know, you're right. It's funny that that you mentioned. Not funny. I mean, it's obvious. You mentioned Deitch going to the Athletic. Um, I think one of the real sort of sad aspects of of you know the the second impending sale of Sports Illustrated is is the way to which they've actually they're not they're a dinosaur in a lot of ways, but they've informed new media to such an extent. I mean, so many of the Athletics founding editors are graduates of you know SI University or whatever. Sure. Um, even there's you know there's startups all over the place. Even when we're, the way that we're talking about the certain sort of writing, especially the sort of uh, intellectual progressive stuff. Uh, you know, I think a lot of that has informed the undefeated in their launch. And, you know, there's some of the best stuff that they've done. Obviously, there's a different there, there, there's a, a you know different point of view to a large extent. But, um, you know, there's still there's still a currency. I mean, they obviously the people in the ringer office hold SI to, to a very high esteem. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and so there is a great currency to it. And that's sort of the most frustrating part of to, to watching it sort of watching their whole enterprise sort of crumble apart. Well, I think, I think you know, we talked about on this pod the other day, ESPN being haunted by nostalgia. Mm-hmm. SI is haunted by nostalgia. Yeah. They're no part of their, they're no fault of their own. Yeah. But by the fact that every sports writer who's, let's say, under 35, over 35, mm-hmm. 40, basically grew up reading SI as the Bible and always dreamed of wanting to write for SI. Yeah. And has this amazing image of SI, which, by the way, if we went back and looked issue to issue, SI was great, but come on, you mm-hmm. know I mean? Like, you know, it was, it was, it was, you know, it was a magazine, right? Yeah. It had some fantastic stuff in it, but I think we probably idealize it yeah. way beyond. I remember, you know, 10 years ago going to a bar with our pal Tommy Craggs mm-hmm. and us having one of our you know, particularly drunken talks about sports writing and what we were going to do and how we're going to conquer the world. Ha ha. Um, you know, but I remember kind of coming out of that thinking, oh, wow, SI is not Valhalla anymore. Yeah. It's not, or at least it's not the Valhalla, right? Mm-hmm. There's other things out in the world. And this is, this is almost certainly like pre Grantland and all this other stuff. But it's just like, it is no longer the singular thing because the world has changed so much. Yeah. I'd say in the debit side also, I'm a little surprised they haven't minted more young stars. And I don't mean young like Jack Dickey and Andrew Sharp Young. I mean like yeah. we're in this age, I think, where you just turn on the computer and precocious 22-year-olds just sort of fly out of the screen. Yeah. 
And, you know, I'm not sure that I've seen that there. And I don't know if that's a structural thing or if I'm just missing it or whatever. I think the other thing that's interesting about SI is because of the Rick Riley's and the Gary Smith's and Frank DeFords and Kirk Kirkpatrick and everybody else. Yeah. They get compared to Esquire or GQ or that kind of, you know, long form God's magazine. Mm -hmm. But really, they have a lot more in common with Time and Newsweek. Right. They're weekly news magazines Uh that had a couple of amazing bonus things in the back. And, you know, their golden age SI is a lot like golden age time, you know, which was also really good Mm -hmm. and full of good writers. And now you look at like what's happening to the news magazines. Time is also for sale. Yeah. This is the problem, right? The general problem is not that the the writing got bad. It's just that that became a very, very hard thing to do. And of course, at SI, you're doing it. You're running a two front war, right? Right. We used to make fun of the newspapers. Oh, they lost their way. Well, yeah, they had to put a newspaper out and compete on the web. Yep. And SI, even though it's biweekly now. They had that too, so obviously that's been a huge. It's funny. I mean, you can't biweekly. I think is the worst possible was the worst possible decision, right? Because you lose the currency, whatever currency you had left of being weekly, and then but you but you also aren't spreading it out enough to really you know have a monthly that you could or a bi monthly that you could sink your teeth into. Yeah, I mean, you can count on one hand the number of legacy magazines that when you hear their name in 2018, you think of the website first. And I mean those as success stories, mm-hmm. right? What is that list? By I, like New York Magazine. I mean, yeah. maybe if you're in New York, you think of, you no, see, you saw someone New York's with the website. New York yeah. Mag Wired, maybe. Yep. Um, there's, you know, I mean, there, there's certainly other places that had magazines that predated the internet. I mean, ESPN is one, you know? I mean, there was at least predated the common internet. I could be wrong about my timelines there, but... Um, there's not that many, you know. I mean, there's there's definitely magazines like they're doing a, you know, the Condé Nast Empire is doing a relatively good job of these things, launching web-only magazines. I certainly interact with Vanity Fair as much as I love the magazine more online than I do in sure. printed form. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's not a very long list, and it's even more difficult. You would think that it would be easier for a weekly to transition to the Internet. But the problem is when your business model is getting out a magazine every week, you're fighting with yourself. You know, I mean, there's like proprietary arguments going on on a daily basis in the office. Like, do we get I'm talking about 15 years ago. Are we yeah. giving this away? Yeah. You know, like, what, should, shouldn't we save this blurb about, you know, George W. Bush for the print edition? or but, whatever? And I think the weekly product is the hardest thing to transition. Right. Like the long form thing that took, you know, a month to gestate uh-huh. the big giant profile and all that stuff. Yeah, that. That translates, we've seen, to the web fairly well. Yeah. But it's the, here's a slightly enriched gamer, mm-hmm. right? Here's a piece about how Michigan started the season 6-0 and and isn't that amazing. Yeah. Those are those are hard things because they're very very much creatures of a weekly magazine. Right? It is like I mean, you get this you get SI on on, on Thursday and like putting Michigan on the cover. The Michigan is six and zero and Michigan's back. Like that was a thing. Mm-hmm. You know that was like a that was as much as it was about what was in the article as just announcing. You know this is officially a thing now. Yeah. We all know this, but now this is a big deal. That's very hard to translate to the web because that just mostly happens like Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, and then you kind of forget about it now, you know? It is. And I said, you know, I was talking about imagining these, what comes to your mind when you hear the names of these a minute ago. I mean, we, we, let's be honest. It, a lot of what SI is dealing with and what Time was dealing with and all those others is the perception of it being of a previous generation. Now, I'm not here to make some broad argument about how, you know, Esquire or Vanity Fair escaped that same fate. But when I think of Sports Illustrated— you know, I think of my dad's copy of Sports Illustrated, sure. you know, I mean, it's over the sporting news. But my, my dad was actually a sporting news subscriber for the longest time. And even at the even as a child, I reckon I, I looked at that with its gothic, you know, head with his gothic uh, marquee or whatever and thought, 
you know, this is an old man's magazine. Sure. I mean, those that was those were his glory days. Yeah. I think, too, it's like, you know, the one thing it does have in common with Esquire and Vanity Fair, as you say, is they could get the big people, right? Mm-hmm. People would do it because it was Sports Illustrated. Yeah. And, you know, there was a certain cachet in doing it in Sports Illustrated as opposed to doing it somewhere else, which in, in for much of sports mediadom was either SI or your local sports page. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that not that they can't get them, but that athletes are kind of ungettable. Yeah. You know, minus Lee Jenkins doing mm-hmm. LeBron's thing or Lee getting a big thing or, you know, um, you know, Tom Verducci going to get Madison Bumgarner after World Series, that kind of thing. It's. The writing then all of a sudden has to be really good. Yeah. Because now you're competing with everybody else who didn't get them mm-hmm. and who's just fully going all in to write the great piece. Yeah. So it's not, you know, the thrill of this is where I'm going to hear from the athletes. Is that diminishes a little bit. They still get lots of people. Mm-hmm. SL Price and Gruden was fabulous the other day. But it's like now the writing better be pretty damn good. Yeah. And that, but even that, that great writing, is what, that was almost like you snuck that in on the back of the front of the book. You know, and the front of the book has now been totally displaced by blogs and by the Internet. Sure. That was the candy that you brought people to the magazine on. And then a lot of a lot of those readers would, you know, find their way to the back to read the great articles. I mean, that's that's the as much as we as much as we remember the great, great long form writing. I mean, you would get it because this was your weekly blog that came in the mail. Totally. Totally. And I wouldn't know that stuff. By the way, I know from the New York Times piece by Sidney Ember about all the sales over at Meredith. Oh, yeah. This is uh, Tom Hardy, who is works for Meredith, says that some of the people who have inquired about these titles are, quote, non-traditional wealthy individuals. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is if you hear people online. And boy, were people crawling over themselves online to say this. You know, I just hope a real a rich person buys SI, a person who just loves sports mm-hmm. and loves the magazine. It's like, in this economy, in this media time that you and I live in, this is what we're reduced to. I hope nice Richie Rich <laughs> buys our publication and keeps us all in business. This is the LA Times. This is this is this is the Washington Post. Yeah. This is Sports Illustrated. Like this is what we're all praying for. It's like yeah, sustainable model. Okay, all that say, yeah, 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 yeah. But we don't really hold out that much hope for that, right? Yeah. What we want is Mr. Rich Guy to come along and buy it and keep us afloat until we figure all that out, which may not actually never happen. Well, ideally, someone who's rich enough that can keep things running and and your you know your bottom line, however much you however much money you spend on flying people to the Masters, will never be a blip big enough to get his attention. If Jeff Bezos <laughs> buys Sports Illustrated and decides he lo- that's his favorite magazine, he'll keep it as it is. They'll be fine forever, right? Sure. But I mean, it's true the the history of the history of journalism, of media is, you know, wealthy benefactors subsidizing great writing. You know, I mean, there's a, there's and been bad a, writing too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, but there's, there's been a lot of that. And, and, uh, you know, it is weird that that's the state of play. I mean, do you want to spin it forward? Do you want to talk about who you think might be these who, these 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 shady uh, <laughs> these hazy multi millionaires? I didn't come no, up with a list. Not at all. Um, you know, NBC News did point you know, mentioned some names of potential buyers. Not they weren't theorizing. You know about the Mark Cubans of the world or whoever these rich sports fans are. God, wouldn't that be um, a mess? A glorious mess if he bought it. But previously, you know, pe- people who previously expressed interest include. Friend of Trump, David Pecker, chief executive of American Media, uh, owner of the National Enquirer, where he said he'd be very interested in a lot of these, a lot of those uh, those properties. And um, Edgar Bronfman Jr., former chief executive of Warner Music, was was interested when they were for sale last time. Now it'll be, you know, it's 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 a mug's game to guess what's going to happen when Meredith bought Sports Illustrated along with everything else. 
they were acting like they were in it for the long haul. That's the way these sorts of acquisitions go, you know. But, but we knew pretty immediately that they liked they liked the lifestyle titles, right? Sure. And that SI and Time and stuff were not their bailiwick. Yeah, but it is interesting to think that it just that that the SI people are hoping for this rich benefactor. Meanwhile, Meredith is still is already slashing jobs. Oh yeah, right. Oh, yeah. They're they're not <laughs> waiting for someone to come in and save the day. No. For at least for SI, they're going like, to allegedly get rid of a thousand employees. All right, David. Our final topic today, I call Colonel of Truth. Two contradictory things happened in Trump media land last week. <laughs> for contributor Ralph Peters, Fox News proved to be too Trumpy, and for readers, the website Breitbart isn't Trumpy enough. Let's start with Peters, a former Army lieutenant colonel who decided not to renew his deal with Fox last week and then turned on the flamethrower in a memo obtained by BuzzFeed's Tom Namako. Ready for some highlights? <laughs> I quote, I feel that Fox News is assaulting our constitutional order and the rule of law while fostering corrosive and unjustified paranoia among viewers. Over my decade with Fox, I was long proud of the association. Now I am ashamed. He goes on to call Fox a mere propaganda machine for a destructive and ethically ruinous administration and says, quote, as a Russia analyst for many years, it has also appalled me that the hosts have made their reputations as super patriots and who justifiably said President blah, 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 blah. Now advance Putin's agenda by making light of Russian penetration of our elections and the Trump campaign. What did you make of one of the great fiery exits in cable news history? Um, I feel like there have been more of these, right? Do we have a ranking of the grade Fox Walk? But I think usually people get fired, right? Yeah, that's true. I think they get fired and then, you know, on the way out the door, uh, go crazy. But this was, he legitimately seems to have left on his own. Yeah. You know, it's a good media hook right now that someone <laughs> is walking away. Yes. There's a certain part of the population of which you and you and I are members who think who will look at a story like this and be like, oh, boy. To, to me, the to me, the Breitbart side of the story is uh, I, I'm, I'm it's, it's easier for me to talk about if we go in from the Breitbart end. OK, let's go in from Breitbart. So Breitbart's traffic is down uh, significantly. According to Politico's Jason Schwartz, the, t- the site dropped from 15 million uniques in October to 7.8 million in February. That February number is down 49% from yeah. 2017. I won't waste anyone's time with jokes about, you know, Russian bots getting their accounts throttled and lowering uh, <laughs> page views. But for, for Fox News, uh, for Breitbart in particular, you know, we hear this all every, every cycle. Partisan outlets suffer when their party is in power, right? Sure. Um, this is a normal thing. This yes. is a normal thing. And MSNBC's ratings went down during the Obama years compared to where they were with George W. Bush. It's more fun to be in the opposition. Also, Breitbart was buoyed by this perception that they were connected to the White House. That they were the official, they were the, you know, whatever the New Republic was to Bill Clinton. This is what Breitbart is to Donald Trump. Yeah, and there was an interesting piece, in, or quote in Schwartz's piece, where this is Kurt Bardello, who's the site's former spokesman. He says, one of the only pl- the, before Breitbart was one of the only places to get a window into what the president was thinking. Right. Now Fox News has supplanted Breitbart Essentially, that Fox became Breitbart. Yes. So this is exactly what I'm getting at. They lost. They lost that connection. Imme- I mean, the first sign was when Bannon was fired from the White House and then quickly removed from Breitbart. After that, for saying some things that not everybody at Breitbart and the White House certainly agreed with. Yeah. Right. He was an enemy of Trump. But he was the direct connection between the web between Breitbart and the White House. He's gone. That starts to suffer. Uh, like you said, Fox takes over as the sort of POTUS whisperer. Um, But it's not just because of his affection for for, you know, Fox programming for Fox and Friends uh, specifically or because of anything, you know, Breitbart did take some shots at his policies. 
I think more than anything, it has to do with John Kelly. I mean, this is the John Kelly effect, right? He stopped people from handing him printouts of Breitbart articles, which people reported (laughs) over and over again with, you know, highlighter circled headlines. This is what you need to be talking about. This is what you need to be tweeting about. That doesn't happen anymore. But John Kelly can't take away Fox and Friends, right? So that becomes his his the way that Donald Trump. <laughs> so he can stop him from reading, but he can't stop him from watching TV. Is that what you're saying? I don't. Th- I, I think it would be. I think it probably would have been more more difficult for him to you know black out certain channels on the cable box. <laughs> that would have been a weird. Maybe he could have done it. Who knows? Like V chip technology from the 90s. But I think that you're right that when Fox becomes the you know official. Trump approved news source. I'm not, you know, I don't think that there's any like, I don't, we need to get into accusations of state media or anything like that. But when, when, when that's Fox's, you know, when that becomes Fox's position, it's Fox and Friends all the way to Hannity. Then the stuff in between, I think, starts changing to fit that profile. If you're, and I don't, I don't think it's malicious or whatever, but, you know, if, if Donald Trump is tweeting in support of Fox and Friends every morning, you got to think that the other people who are, you know, programming Fox shows or running Fox shows are just like, we got to get some of that love. Oh, you absolutely. Know? So, I mean, you, that was one of the striking things about the campaign, right? Is Fox being skeptical, going from being skeptical of Donald Trump. Yeah. To embracing it, yeah, and to saying if you're on here, you support Trump, right? right? This is the place where where Trump is cheered on and defended and all that stuff. And whether or not it's true, the ideological, you know, whatever, it's a, whether it's a mouthpiece or not, certainly the perception that they're chasing that sort of approval and the ratings that come with it, I think, is enough for certain contributors to take great offense to, you know? I mean, I'm sure that a lot of, you know, moderate, liberal, even old-fashioned conservative contributors to Fox hear it endlessly from their friends and family, that they're a part of this organization and, 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 you know, intellectually, if they're consistent, I understand why someone might take objection to it. Well, and that was Peters has a really interesting profile in that sense, right? He's always had his his doubts about Trump. Here he is telling Stuart Varney of Fox Business, who's definitely one of my favorite hosts, Mm -hmm. uh, why he's voting for Hillary. I don't want Moscow's man in the White House. My concern, look, I know I could be a lot more popular this morning by saying, oh, Trump's the messiah, I'm going to vote for him. This is about the future of our country. It's about our security. And here's a guy who apologizes for everything um, Vladimir Putin does, makes crazy remarks about NATO, about Syria, about nukes, about the Mosul offensive, and, oh, by the way, about foreign trade. You want a, you want a global recession? You want to see your portfolio really tank? Sure. Just walk away from all our trade deals. Let me Great come job. back at you for a second. And here he is stomping on Tucker Carlson when Carlson suggests that we share foreign policy objectives with Vladimir Putin. No, Why does it contravene American interest because in a common Vladimir cause with a group Putin that's trying to kill ISIS? invaded his neighbors, broken the long peace in Europe. He assassinates dissidents and journalists. He bombs women and children on purpose in Syria. He is as bad as Hitler. And I'm sorry, if you, know, if you don't like the Charles Lindbergh thing, I will retract that. But let's just say you sound like someone in the 1938 saying, what's Hitler done to us? And it's funny. I mean, I think part of this is like it also suggests a question, right? You were okay with Fox News Mm pre-Trump, but now it's a propaganda machine of the first order, you know, now. But it's like in his case, it's almost like he is he when you watched his these appearances, whether it was with Tucker or whatever else. He would just when he talked about Russia, mm-hmm. he would just be like, "I can't believe we're showing any affection for these guys." Yeah. Policy object. I just can't believe we're in bed with these guys, mm-hmm. and to whatever degree. Yeah. So it's like he actually has a somewhat particular yes. gripe here, and that goes to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. By the way, I was also thrilled to learn that uh, Peters is the author of a historical mystery novel. <laughs> Did you know that? 
Can I read you the Amazon description? Yes, please do. Quote, grotesque murders multiply as Major Abel Jones pursues a monstrous <laughs> killer who may be a well-connected Confederate agent or a ghost from Jones's bloody past in India or both. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I thought that was fabulous. By the way, a wonderful side note to the story is Steve Bannon's European tour. Now dislodged from Breitbart, wow. he's going around do, giving all the alt-right speeches in Europe mm-hmm. to Europe's various outlier parties. Um, this is, uh, and he's looking forward to, this is according to the New York Times' Jason Horowitz, a proliferation of populist websites in the image of Breitbart News, which will spread those ideas across Europe. He's weighing whether to buy Newsweek or the United, <laughs> speaking of rich people buying magazines, or United Press International. I enjoyed uh Timothy Noah, my old colleague at Slate, tweeted, Steve Bannon reaches they love me in Europe stage of irreversible <laughs> career decline. Which I love that he's like the Jerry Lewis of the alt-right, right? The you know, they love, of the, yeah. <laughs> right, they love me in Europe. That was amazing. Oh, man. Um, I just I just want to do a whole, by the way, for the future, we should just do a whole segment on Stuart Varney at some point because it's that was the that was the that my rabbit hole of the week, was just watching more and more of Varney after, uh, after the Ralph Peters interview. I... I I may have a relative who wakes up every morning and watches to her Varney. And I'm, let's just say this relative is not British. Okay. And they are not particularly interested in markets. <laughs> Money matters, right? And I'm just, I just am amazed. Like, what is the connection? You know, the visceral connection of the Fox host to the audience, Bill O'Reilly, right? Tough sure, guy from yeah, Long yeah, Island. Yeah. But what, what is this, right? What, what is the How is, how is Stuart Varney? Charming people in the audience. I don't know how many people watch Fox Business, but I'm amazed at the couple of times I've watched it, how he gets it across. Anyway. All right, David. What do you think for the future, though? I mean, do you think that for Fox, I don't I don't want to get to, I mean, there's no reason to predict too much. But it's interesting because I think there are some on the left that would say that this move, and this is what Ralph Peters' argument would be, is that Fox uh, is probably doing irreparable damage to their own brand, Fox News, by going down this path. All right? You could also make... A sort of arch argument that, like, I'm trying to think of who, like, if the next Republican nominee for president were someone like John Huntsman, you could imagine John Huntsman saying, you know, I'm just not going to I'll do some perfunctory stuff with Fox, but I'm not going to engage, you know, with that echo chamber. But you could also imagine him saying it's clear that they'll just go with whoever wins. So I'm going to use it. And I think I think that's true. Yeah, I think they will go with whoever wins. Sure. It's like it look in a lot of ways it's like the Republican Party. And maybe the Democratic Party, too, that just hasn't been tested in this way. No, but yeah. the Republican Party we've seen has shapes, you know, has refashioned themselves around whoever the nominee is. Yeah. Um, I think if you looked at the way Fox covered Mitt Romney, it was less than a full-on embrace, mm-hmm. right? Because it wasn't as visceral a connection. Not to, as good TV. Yeah, not as good TV. And also to their their people sitting at home watching it, mm-hmm. right? The 70-somethings, right? Whatever. As we, as, we, as we learned, Mitt Romney didn't connect with those people in key states anyway in the way Donald Trump did. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, I think that, you know, in a way it's like they would be they would be happy to go there. Huntsman yeah. Huntsman or somebody like that that's so different would be a real test. But yeah, no, I you know, different ideologically, but yeah, I I I'd kind of I kind of want to see that. I mean, this time it was like they didn't they really didn't want Trump to be the nominee yeah. at the beginning, right? And when it was clear Trump was going to become the nominee or at least their viewers were indistinguishable from Trump voters, they're all in. For sure. Yeah. Now, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I think we'll probably be back here a year from now having these, you know, an exact same conversation. You think we'll be talking more about Fox News? How could they have got, how could they have gone another step? They've gone too far this time. Next week on The Press Box, more hot takes, more everything about our media universe. See you next week, buddy. See you, man. 